Good morning. You know, last uh, <clears throat> last Sunday I was so excited I told you that uh, I had eaten armadillo. <laughs> and uh, they told me this week that I didn't eat armadillo. <laughs> yeah, I was shocked too. You know, a church function, followers of Christ, wild game feed, a young boy sent out on a mission with a platter of meats, says it's armadillo. Comes to the pastor. Are you sure it's armadillo? It's armadillo. They, the big people told me it's armadillo. It was, uh, it was deer meat. I guess, it, you know, <clears throat> it became a marketing thing. You have a lot of deer meat, and people get tired of eating deer meat, so you tell them it's armadillo. <laughs> oh, that was fun. But I'm kind of disappointed. I thought, you know, that's a lot of armadillo there. Where do they get all these armadillo? <laughs> Hey, it's Palm Sunday, and uh, this morning we're going to look at what is also called the triumphal entry. We're going to look at it in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. I'd like to begin reading at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, that is the feast of Passover in which Jerusalem swelled to double its size, people all over the land, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. As a young boy, it was such an exciting time each year on the 4th of July to go to the big city-wide 4th of July parade. I mean, for, for me, young kid, it was, uh, it, was, it was energizing. It was so exciting. I could hardly sleep the night before. You get up early. All the preparations are being made. And then, of course, to go. And I know this seems Oh, tell me something new. You know, parades, passe, 
But for a kid, a parade is a big deal. And we used to have a pretty big city parade. And to me, the, 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 there were lots of spectacular things to be sure, but I was enthralled with the horses. And I'll tell you, there's just, there was something about horses, you know, stallions. I'm talking steeds. Snorting, mu muscular, and just shining and huge, you know, in the in the in the sun. And then they would have people that were riding them in uniforms, and whether it was medallions or or emblems, or sequins, and everything. It was just glorious. And flags, flags. And I, I, I'm not exaggerating. I just thought to ride in a parade on a horse, on a stallion, on a steed, that would just be a dream, you know? That would be... Every once in a while, you would have like a family or a community of riders, and of course, those people would have some children, and every once in a while, there would be a child on a donkey. Uh, I'm sorry. My idea, my dreams are not made of donkeys. They're made of steeds. And you know, that's been the way it has been through history. In, in fact, I find uh, anecdotally that generals, rulers, conquerors, victors in triumphs, and I've been in Roman history a lot, and when they have a triumph, man, nobody does a triumph like a recur, re, you know, returning general imperator from battle, having conquered a country, he brings with him all the emblems of his victory, things from that conquest, all of the treasures, even people and kings in chains. And I mean, it is a huge thing. And the emperor, the king, the general, the victor always if he doesn't ride on a steed, he rides in a chariot drawn by four steeds. Not a donkey anywhere. Donkeys. Royalty, chariots, victory, victors. No donkeys. They don't go together. Steeds, steeds, stallions, horses go with chariots and royalty and victory. And I think we need to really grasp that. That's a big part of what we're to see here is that the one we follow finds a donkey. We who follow Jesus are called to find a donkey, not a steed. 
And that's a pretty big challenge because we live in a world of steeds. A world of success and celebrity and power. It's the values of Rome versus the values of Christ. And for us as followers, it really does become a contest. A contest of power and money and fame versus lowliness, kindness, and love. We live in Rome. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. All roads lead to Rome. And those who revel in Rome are people of the steed, not the donkey. No commercials about donkeys unless they're just poking fun at them. Commercials about steeds, steel steeds, fiberglass steeds, beautiful men and women who ride on steeds, people who live for steeds. It's a life of steeds. It's a world of steeds, not donkeys. And you and I have chosen to follow Someone who rides a donkey. This contest, this struggle, this challenge, this contradiction is real. Someone tweeted, there was a time when Justin Bieber, Miley Cyrus, and Katy Perry were all professed Christians. They set out after a donkey, but they rode off on a steed. It really is the steed over the donkey, and it's a choice of Rome over Christ, of me, over the love of God, of me, over the way of Caesar, the way of Caesar over the way of Jesus Christ. John understood this. Very pivotal verse here is verse 16. And you might note the sequence. They come out, they come out of the city. To Jesus, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but there's a lot of powerful imagery, ideology, and symbolism in this. And then we're told Jesus found a donkey. They wanted to make him king in chapter 6. Jesus slipped away. And at the time, the disciples were caught up in it as well. And he says in verse 16, only after Jesus had been glorified did we get it. 
did we realize that there is a greater glory than the steed and there's no greater way than the donkey. Listen to what he says. This one who got it later, after he was glorified. What does that mean? After he died and was raised from the dead. All of a sudden, a death that is a tragedy. I mean, can you? You can't imagine what it would be like to, to follow him, to leave everything as it were, to lay it all on the line, to follow the right man for all the right reasons. And then he dies on the cross and you think all of the right reasons were wrong. Until the resurrection. And then all of a sudden, a death takes on a meaning that no death has ever taken on before. And the resurrection communicates a truth of what God was doing in Jesus' death on the cross that changed you and me, changed the way we see the world, changed the way we think things ought to be done. Changed the way hearts should even be thought to be conquered. And John says here in his first letter, the second chapter, verses 15, 16, and 17. Listen, he says, do not love the world. Oh, I know, it's the way of the steed. But he says, don't love the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. There are things that are more permanent than the things of the steed, if you will. There are things more powerful than Rome, more potent than Caesar, more precious. And it's revealed in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I do know we want a steed. And, uh, you know, they say never switch horses in the middle of a stream. You ever heard that? I've never tried that. Have you? I, my guess is you get wet. Could you imagine trying to do the same thing between a steed and a donkey? That's what I do. My life is a stream, and I find myself being drawn to the steed, thinking this is the way of the steed. This is real power. This is real glory, the steed. And then I'm 
pulled back into reality, the reality that's revealed in Jesus Christ. No, the way is not the way of the steed. The way is the way of the donkey. It doesn't even sound good. It sounds so clunky, the way of the donkey. But you know what? I love that. Because all that clunkiness, all that upside-downness, all that weirdness, all that thing, stuff that seems strange because we live in Rome. It's the way of Rome. It's only through revelation that we understand how much we need a donkey. We want a steed, but we need a donkey. I want us to look at the palms and the praise, the donkey and disciples, and the sign and the significance. And I'm going to move through this uh, in, a, in a, I hope, an orderly fashion, but I tend to get wound up on this, and sometimes I cover things. But it's all going to be there. It's all going to be focused on, on that. I want to start with the palms and the praise because Jesus was welcome. He was received But they came out giving him this reception with palms and praise. And I'll tell you, this was no ordinary reception. In fact, the fact that they came out to meet him is the way that cities, and you know, we think of sprawling cities and so forth, but those, they were often walled cities back in those days. And the people would come out of the cities to receive, to welcome a returning conqueror or king. Another thing that I see here is not only do they come out to meet him and receive him, but they took branches of palm trees. We think, isn't that, isn't that precious? But these palms are a signal that they see Jesus as their liberator. Palms were a nationalist symbol, a nationalist symbol. I don't know if you watched that show, um, Revolution. I got caught up in that. I think it, I'm thinking now it was made by the same, same people who did Lost in I'm starting to get lost too, but you know, there was, in the premise of this television show was that something happened and the world lost all of its power. You know, we feel pretty, you know, like I'm all that because I got my, you know, I've got my smartphone and I've got my iPad and I got my computer and I got my Wi-Fi and I'm connected and boom. No electricity, no recharged batteries, and so the whole world is thrown into darkness and chaos, and people are fighting for survival, and there are people banding together, and they're, so to speak, a a nation without bounds or regions, and now people are fighting each other, you know? And so there's this moment in the show where this group of people, uh, they're trying to take, they're gaining force, and, 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 and for the first time in the show, you see an American flag. 
the flag of the United States. And it, and it just hit me against that background, what that flag stood for. It, order, law, justice, you know, liberty, freedom. These palm branches represented something. I mean, under the Maccabees, the, you know, the resistance of the freedom fighters, if you will, uh, threw off the uh, Seleucid rule and reign and restored the sanctuary to purity and restored worship of God. Palms symbolized their triumph, their parades. When they minted coins, not only in the Maccabean Revolt, but the Bar Kokhba against Rome in 132 to 36, they minted coins with palm branches. They come out waving these palms in between the Maccabean and the Bar Kokhba Revolt, these palms which were symbolic of their liberation, of their resistance to tyranny, to the rule of other peoples, to the power of Rome or the power of the Seleucids, the successors of Alexander the Great. They were asserting and expressing their independence, and then it's followed with and accompanied, followed in the text and accompanied in the in the reception of Jesus with shouting of Hosanna, deliver us, save us. That's what Hosanna means. Deliver us, save us. Hail to the king who comes in the Lord's name, the king of Israel. That's what they say. That's what they shout. And that's why the Pharisees later, and even in previous, in the, back in chapter 11 of John, they are very concerned about the way the crowds are responding to Jesus. They see him as a threat to the stability of their existence as a people with freedoms to worship God and carry on life as devoted Jews. And they see this all in jeopardy. In fact, C.H. Dodd said, what we have here is a dangerous picture of the king of Israel acclaimed as he rides in triumph into his capital city, which was an effort to capture that, that sense. The only thing that's missing is a steed. I'm not kidding. And I know that the other uh, Gospels tell us about the arrangements. The sequence is important and when Jesus chose to mount it. But John wants us to see the juxtaposition. He wants us to see, so to speak, the budding heads of ideology and mission. When he goes right from the description of the crowds that have received him in this way, and then it says, Jesus found a donkey. Do 
Jesus wasn't angling to be king. In the Gospel of John, unlike any of the other Gospels, it opens in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was already in existence in the beginning. And the Word was with God and was God. He goes on to say in those very opening verses, all things were created through him and without him was created nothing that was created. In him was life. Verse 4. And the life was the light of men. And then he goes on to say, he came into his own. And you're thinking, did he come into the world? He created everything. When it says he came into his own, there is a reference to Judea, to the Judeans, this distinct people, a, a small people of all the peoples of the world. He came into his own, the creator of all, came into his own. And what does it say? His own received him not. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Of the whole world. And no wonder in verse 19, it's ironic when we read it. The irony is created by inside knowledge, by higher knowledge, by higher truth. This is all true. These are all true things happening here. But what, what we see is irony in what's happening here because we see a higher truth. We know a deeper a, a greater truth that causes us to see this in a particular way. And so the Pharisees say, the whole world is going after him. They're talking about just there. But John knows we know because we have this omniscient perspective that's given to us from the very outset of the gospel. An, a an omniscient perspective, an all-knowing perspective as far as the you know, narrative understanding of any written work. This omniscient perspective is a retrospective perspective. In other words, as John says in verse 16, he got this donkey. We didn't even know what was going on. We're all hyped. We're going to Jerusalem and look at the acclaim. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They have hit the jackpot. <laughs> this, is the, this is the Super Bowl lotto victory. And then the cross happens, and it's like I misread my lotto ticket, or I was told that I ate armadillo. 
when I just had deer. And then the resurrection. And all of a sudden, everything's different. And the cross is filled with incredible meaning, not just tragedy, disenchantment, despair, defeat, but purpose and meaning and mission of God in a way they hadn't fathomed. And then they realized that donkey was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, expressing the very humility of God's reign and rule, the exercise of his power. This is important because how did Jesus resist the temptation of seeking the steed instead of the donkey? He's fully human. Hebrews 2.18 and 4.15 make that so, so clear. Tempted in all ways as we are, not with all the individual crud that you've been tempted with, but in principle, there is no temptation that you have suffered that he himself has not suffered. And one of the biggest temptations, and this is, this is brought out throughout the Gospels, at his baptism, in his temptation, Jesus knew that he was on a mission. He was offered the whole world, as it were. But he chose, he chose to serve God fully. By the way, in the Gospel of John, and this was the subject of my dissertation, he's the representative, he is the agent of God par excellence. Every, over a hundred times, the word sent is used. He is the sent one. And it's after the fashion of Jewish agency. The one sent is as the one who sent him. He has, I love this word, when you write a dissertation, you use words like this, plenipotentiary power. That's like superpower. You know, he's got all power. He's got complete power. There's no limit. There's no lean. There's no check on his power. In John 3 and John 13, all things, we're told, have been put into his hands, which is the Jewish conception of a transaction of property. When you have it in your hands, you are owner. God has given Jesus as his agent to go in his place. All authority and ownership. And Jesus has authority only in his complete obedience to the Father. That's why he who can have such great authority comes in such humility again and again and again and again and again in the Gospel of John. This is what you'll hear. 
Jesus saying something like, I have not come in my own name. I come in the name of the one who sent me. I seek not my own glory. I seek the glory of the one who sent me. My words are not my own. My words are not my own. They are the words of the one who sent me. He will even say, if you believe in me, you believe not in me, but you believe in the name or in the person, you believe in the one who sent me. Jesus will say, I do nothing on my own. And that's because in Jewish agency, if you seek your own benefit, you violate the agency. And you are no longer acting in the name and authority of the one who sent you, but you're acting in your own. And then you are accountable for what you do in your own name and for your own glory. The power of this is huge because in verse 27 of this chapter, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Here's the thing that I want to just emphasize is that it is a struggle. We want a steed, but we need a donkey. And everything around us is yelling, steed. How is it that we choose that donkey? How is it that Jesus chose that donkey? In marriage, in raising your children, in school or on your job, You have to have a mission. And if you do not have a mission, then you will not be able to make the kinds of judgments and choices and decisions that you will have to make to stay on that mission. You have to be consumed with that mission, obsessed with that mission. When you enter ministry, a lot of people, they think of ministry as a job. I never thought of it as a job. This is not the job I would. This is a calling. And there have been many times that I've just wanted to say, okay, you don't like me, so I'm going to take my bat, my ball, and my glove and go home and leave you to yourselves. But I stop myself because I've been called. This is a mission that God has given me. And we have to see our lives as missions in Jesus Christ. We don't raise kids just for ourselves anymore. We raise them for something greater. And it becomes a calculation in the way we handle it. I mean, kids are tough. They can get on your nerves. They can embarrass you. They can shame you. And you, you try to train them, you know, as a pastor. Take it from me. There have been times in the past that there, there's that temptation. You know, people say, your kids should behave better. Well, they're kids. Yeah, but they're your kids. And I had to say, no, I'm not going to react to that. I'm not going to get upset at that because of my ego, because of me, because I want a steed and my kid's a donkey.
I'm trying to take my kids somewhere, you know? And where I'm trying to take them means that I don't, I don't get to just make decisions about them in a way that suits me. It's the same in marriage. If you're on a mission, it changes the way you see your spouse. You want a steed. The world says you, you want a steed. Well, I'll tell you, in life, everybody turns into a donkey. I'm pushing my metaphors all over the place here, but you get my point. You know, when we choose, when we choose to ride a donkey because of Jesus Christ, it changes the way we see one another, that we see the challenges in life. The steed is all about us. The steed is all about pride and ego and, you know, success on on the world's terms. But God turns that all upside down with the cross and the resurrection. And the donkey in this triumphal entry, it symbolizes the way of the cross and resurrection. And I want us to cherish that because it's that grasp that allows us to say no to certain things and yes to the right things. But we have to be mindful because the world is just saying all there is, is the only thing worth living for is a steed. And the gospel is saying there's something more, but it's disguised as a donkey. The donkey and the disciples, you know, I talked about the retrospect, but the way of the donkey is humility, lowliness, and unselfishness. It's interesting because glory, you know, a word is not always used the same throughout the New Testament. Matthew may use a word a little differently than John does. John uses glory in a sense that's quite profound, and it goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, maybe you're familiar with it. Uh, Moses wants to see the glory of God. And God puts him in the cleft of the rock, and he he says, I'm going to show you my glory. But then we're told that he turned his back, and he went by, but it says, Lord, Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, and this is what we read. This is what the glory of the Lord is. Whoops, wrong spot. 34.6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, I know when we think of glory, the Greek notion of glory, it's kind of amazing because the word glory is doxa, and you find it used all over the the place in Greek writings uh, for reputation and fame. Your glory is your reputation and fame. 
But in the Old Testament, glory is gravity, weight, substance. Heavy. Glory is heavy. It's interesting that the glory here, which is often described as brilliance, blinding fireworks and light, glory, when God passes by, is all of the weight of his real person and character, his nature. Now, I tell you this because the Gospel of John opens, and the great truth is this. In verse 14 of the first chapter, the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And what does it say? We beheld His glory. The glory of the only Son of the Father. The glory of the unique Son of the Father. Then it says this, full of grace and truth. There you have it. That is a direct reference to Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, when God revealed his person, his character, his nature as his glory. Jesus is the revelation, the revealing of the Father. And his way is the way of lowliness and humility, even weakness. And what we see in the cross is shame in the eyes of Rome. It's humiliation in the hands of Caesar. But in the hands of God, the cross is not shame. It's lowliness. It is his will to lower himself that he might show you and me his true glory, his love, his mercy, his kindness, his goodness, his forgiveness. And that's all certified and verified in the resurrection. And that's why his death and resurrection in the Gospel of John is called his glorification. And that's why after the fact, they saw things altogether different. And that's the sign and the significance. Because there are seven signs in the Gospel of John. The seventh one is the raising of Lazarus. But a sign is just a it's a whiff, it's a scent of, a, of something pure. It's a, it's a sensation of something more real. It's the partial experience of something more true. It points to something more bona fide. And that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The sad thing is later in the chapter, chapter 12, it says, He did many signs before them. 
and yet they didn't believe him. They came out because of the sign, the power. This man has power. It's especially the resurrection power of raising Lazarus from the dead. Who has power like that? But they didn't want it because of the cross. They just wanted a power greater than Rome to serve their own purposes. That's the way of the steed. The significance in the cross, the, the significance of the resurrection is in the cross. And that's what we're called to. That's what we need. We want a steed, but we need a donkey. And that's what we're called to in our lives, too, to show that same love, that same truth that Jesus revealed and imparts to us when we know him as Lord and Savior. Will you stand? Let me pray for us, but I just want to let you know again, um, especially if you're visiting, I'm going to be up here after I pray, and so will the pastoral staff, elders, their wives. If you want to pray with us, maybe something on your heart this morning. Um, maybe it's been all steed and no donkey, and you, you want to switch from horse to donkey, and you'd like to pray about that. Please, we want to pray with you. Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ. Come. Maybe you want to pray to him who has such a precious heart that he should go to the cross for us. Come and pray. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your heart revealed in him, revealed in so many moving and beautiful ways, no less the way of a donkey. May that be something that lures and draws us as we think of you and serve you this day and this week. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, God bless you.